welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. And today I am joined by the hermit, poet, and priest, Father Dave Denny. As a college student, Dave set out to be a journalist or perhaps a scholar of interreligious studies, but his plans were waylaid when he became a Carmelite monk for 30 years. (laughs) Of course, surprise, surprise, the divine found other ways to fulfill his desires. And so over the years, Dave Dave has written and edited for a magazine, co-founded an interspiritual foundation, and collaborated with many other interreligious leaders. And he currently lives as an urban hermit in Arizona and is working on his memoir. So Dave, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Kelly. It's wonderful to be here and finally meet you, as we said earlier, at least virtually. Yes, indeed. I was hoping you could start us out today um, talking about that shift that happened. Like you set out and you were thinking you were going to be a journalist. And then like, how did you end up becoming a Carmelite hermit? Like, (laughs) how did that path happen? Yeah. Well, when I was in college... I uh, was at Prescott College in Northern Arizona, and it was kind of, you know, general liberal, liberal arts. And uh, as you mentioned, I was probably thinking about uh, journalism, something like that. But uh, my roommate uh, gave me a book, and he's the last person in the world I ever expected to suggest this book. Uh, it was called Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. Now, this was the early 70s, and so there were, we knew about uh, Hindu mysticism, we knew about Sufism, we knew about transcendental meditation, we, a lot of gurus were coming over from India, uh, Tibetan teachers, and I knew zero about Christian contemplative or mystical tradition. I was brought up uh, in the Disciples of Christ, a Protestant tradition. So I grew up in a Christian family, but like a lot of college students, I wasn't really practicing anything in, in school and at that age of 18, 19. Uh, so I read Merton and I was just stunned. I, I thought all the monks in the universe had died in the Middle Ages or something. So it was a shock that there were monks, let alone well, especially Christian monks uh, in the 20th century. So that was surprising. And then he was a writer. He was interested in literature, stuff like that. And he becomes a Cistercian monk. That that was strange and intriguing to me. So I began to read more about him. Uh, a priest came and taught a class at Colorado College on the New Testament. He was a Jesuit priest. And uh, I thought, well, I should learn something more about this tradition. So I took the class. And he knew about a retreat center, a monastery near Prescott called the Spiritual Life Institute. And it was in Sedona, Arizona. 
And I thought, oh, that's kind of like, you know, what Merton's up to. Oh, maybe I should go check that out. So one uh, winter uh, when I was, uh, it was Christmas break, I went over it for like a three or four day retreat. And it was kind of love at first sight. I, uh, I'd never been to mass before. So I, I was, um, you know, the disciples of Christ had what they called the Lord's Supper every Sunday, which is not the case in a lot of Protestant traditions. So uh, there was that sense of, you know, the, the Eucharist. Uh, and my dad was a, an elder in the church. So occasionally he'd be up there on the altar with the minister and the other and one other elder. And something about, I think that probably set me up <laughs> in a way. For then, when I went to mass, this it was familiar. On the one hand, on the other hand, that uh, more Catholic sense of the real presence was just stunning to me. I mean, mm. it, it, in a way, it, in a way, it's more kind of primitive, primordial. In a way, it's like, whoa, this is uh, something very ancient about that sense of uh, this mysterious presence. So. Uh, I, I used to then um, take breaks from school and go back on retreat every once in a while. I uh, wanted to study Arabic <laughs> and Middle Eastern history, which I couldn't do at Prescott. So I went down to, for the last uh, three semesters, I spent at University of Arizona here in Tucson. And, uh, but kept going back to Sedona on retreat. Then uh, when I graduated, I graduated mid mid year so i thought okay i've got like six months here before i go to grad school i uh, again thought we think about journalism or comparative religion and i asked if i could spend uh a, like a month in sedona and uh they said oh yeah okay uh then i after a, a week or two i said well how about another month and then that went on for 30 years <laughs> so <laughs> just never left that's uh that's kind of how it happened. So <clears throat> it was on the one hand, you know, there was a continuity with my upbringing in Christianity, but on the other hand, uh, there was something new and fresh. And I especially was drawn by a couple of other things. Uh, Merton, you know, was very involved like in the anti-war and civil rights movements. And this really fascinated me. I thought, wait a minute, Here's this Cistercian, he's supposed to be out there thinking about the timeless, the eternal, uh, the not at all involved in what we used to call the profane because he was interested in the sacred. And but I was fascinated by that. I thought, well, that makes hmm. I, I like that. And uh, the other thing about him was that then he was also involved in these interreligious dialogues. Hmm. And because I'd had some exposure to other religions, uh, that just seemed the way to go to me. And that combination of um, profound commitment to Christ that instead of closing him down, opened him up, that to me was just wonderful. So yeah. I thought, wow, I'd like to, I'd like to pursue that path. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I feel like that's such a, um, juxtaposition in most people's minds of having like, right. you know, becoming a hermit, getting lost in contemplation and having a very yeah. um, rigorous prayer life. And then on mm -hmm. the flip side, also being an activist, like what, mm -hmm. what does that mean? And how does that, how do you combine those two desires and the two, those two lifestyles? 
Yeah, I think it's uh, something that historically uh, we still haven't resolved. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that's exciting about it to me uh, is that this is a, still kind of being worked out. I think the implications of the incarnation uh, that are that's at the heart of Christianity are still uh, being explored. I think that, uh, I think we fell into a kind of an artificial du dualism um, somewhere along the line. And so that sacred profane thing was split. I think I, I think it's uh, Wendell Berry and maybe Richard Rohr to talk about, um, there's no such thing as sacred and profane. There's the sacred and the desecrated. Mm. And to me that, really strikes home that uh, so those two worlds never really need to be separated to uh, sacred and the profane because the, the, that's really an unreal it's kind of fictitious separation so that's that's sort of i guess the philosophical background to why i i don't see any um problem with the two uh, i think the what developed in the monasteries was a contemplative way of being mm. associated with specific practices that people got the idea had no place mm. in the so-called profane life or the life of the world. And it became a kind of a specialized, um, mm. you know, contemplation or mysticism as something specialized by that only professional monks did. Mm -hmm. So I think part of what we're trying to do, and this I got from, uh, I think Jacques Maritain said, he thought that one of the big uh, focuses for the church in the 20th century and beyond was to get contemplation out of the monastery and into the streets. So <clears throat> that's, uh, uh, that's one big theme that always has, has been captivating to me. And of course, the, the, um, a combination of, I know there's a, a guy named Matthew Egemeyer who talks about um, the sacramental and the prophetic. These are two aspects of uh, Christianity that also occur, of course, in Judaism and Islam. The prophetic, that uh, history matters. History is important. Time and space, flesh and blood, these are real. These aren't like illusions. And therefore, what we do, how we conduct ourselves in time and space, in in politics, in our schools, uh, that's that's all part of the sacred. And um, so we need to pay attention to that. And um, so I think that's all. Th th those are some of the themes that, that kind of captivated me. Obviously, my life, I'm not much of an activist, but I do uh, uh, try to keep my finger on the pulse of, of what's going on and also uh, to uh, point out things that I find uh, hopeful. For example, this is Black History Month and I just posted uh, an article about John Lewis, the Congressman John Lewis, who hmm. uh, kind of kept, you know, took up much of uh, the work of the civil rights movement of the 60s and continued it for decades. And uh, so... I don't know if I answered your question, but <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm curious to um, as we're talking about your life, you've I mean you've transitioned to some. I mean when you were at the um, Spiritual Life Institute, there was some aspect of community to that, yes, or was it completely like yeah. I'm a hermit and <laughs> oh yeah, the uh, 
one of the things I loved about the, the part of falling in love with Christ and church and, and the Catholicism was the falling in love with the Carmelite spirit. And we were a Carmelite community. So there was always a balance historically in the Carmelites between solitude and community. Uh, when they came to Europe, that kind of broke down. There was in Europe, there was a kind of a, a suspicion, I guess, about a more solitary life. Mm. Uh, community life was emphasized more. And so the, the Carmelites lost some of that. I think St. Teresa was trying to regain some of that. And of course, John of the Cross was uh, loved solitude and sought it out um, whenever he could. So uh, the idea and the ideal was to look to somebody like Elijah, who was considered kind of the spiritual father of the Carmelites. And Elijah, as we know, spent a lot of time out in the desert in prayer. But then from time to time, the spirit moved him to come out into the into the city and kind of disturb the uh, status quo <laughs> uh, in, a, in a prophetic way. And that's then that links back to John Lewis. You know, one of his favorite sayings was, you need to get into good trouble sometimes. Mm. And there's where the prophetic thing comes in, you know, uh, standing up for certain uh, values uh, in, the, in the culture at large and standing up for the poor, standing up for the marginalized and reminding one another that that's really important. Mm. So uh, in our community, the way that got lived out was we'd have like uh, two or three days a week, completely solitary. And then three or four days of the week when we would work together. So we might be gardening, it might be construction, it might be maintenance, it might be uh, working on our magazine. Uh, there'd also be some time. We were always open as a retreat center. So each retreatant uh, had a hermitage, a separate little hmm. hermitage. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were open to some spiritual direction for people who came. So to me, that was a wonderful balance of solitude and community. And uh, it, it, it kind of hones and polishes and, and balances you out in a wonderful way. Uh, you know, you could get a little, you'd go a little nuts and, and get too much solitude, although that would probably be one of my <laughs> temptations. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, community can become distracting. And I know uh, St. Teresa of Avila was such an extrovert, as is my friend Tessa mm -hmm. Balecki, who's my next floor neighbor. She lives upstairs. Uh, you know, the, the, there's always the danger of uh, getting too involved uh, and uh, missing some out on some of that deeper inner life that comes mm -hmm. with the silence and solitude. So I, I found it a great balance. Yeah, I I would be curious what your thoughts or advice would be to people who perhaps are relatively new on the contemplative path. And mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering, especially like, what do you know now about the contemplative path that you didn't know, you know, let's say a few years into your life as a Carmelite? Yeah. <clears throat> I think that <laughs> because I pursued it so um, intensely in, and in such an unusual situation, uh, there might have been a danger of thinking that's the only way to do it. Mm. The, the zeal that comes, I think, uh, we often talk about the, the zeal of the neophyte. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, at my, uh, in my old age now, <laughs> I see the path as being wildly uh, various, variegated. 
in mm -hmm. different ways of looking at contemplation, for example, are coming out of the black church. Uh, is it Barbara Holmes who talks about uh, crisis contemplation? Mm. This is this is what happens. <clears throat> for example, the in the a lot of the mystical traditions, you have this sense that, um, uh, well, John of the Cross, like entering the dark night, entering the desert. This is something you do, something you choose. Uh, take up your cross. Whereas for other communities, such as uh, uh, Black Americans, you're not choosing the desert. Unfortunately, something unjust, something cruel has been imposed on you. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with that? Uh, to me, that that's uh, that's probably another you know path toward contemplation. It's not one that anybody should have to undertake, but by the grace of God and miraculous. Uh, <laughs> yeah miraculous grace uh tremendous spiritual growth has come out of that uh, mm -hmm. all those injustices so um <clears throat> it's not just a matter of you know, going off into the desert uh, voluntarily although i do think that based on my experience the it's really important for people to find chunks of time mm. uh, during their day so if you're a busy parent, if you can get up a little earlier in the morning or stay up a little later at night to have that more reflective time, those little desert pockets are important, I think. Um, I think that uh, occasional retreat time in a si more silent, solitary, preferably wilderness environment can be really important to get that benchmark uh, I think that uh, one of the things I notice about urban life is that it's much more anthropocentric mm. and uh, living out in the wilderness. The human aspect is uh, kind of a minority and you're more aware of the plants and animals and stars and, and it's a whole different sense of how we are in the world that I think uh, appeals to something very deep in us. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would really encourage people, uh, even though you're probably not going to go to a monastery, um, to uh, look for those opportunities, take advantage of those uh, quiet, solitude, wilderness, those, they're important, but yeah. also be open to the fact that uh, locking yourself away in a, in a, in a cloister uh, is uh, not the only option. Yes. And that is such a struggle. I know for so many people, especially those who are, you know, parents of young children, or, you know, you work a nine to five job and all of that is so challenging <laughs> to find time to just be still. And I yeah. know that there are chapters in life where it's like, you know what, there's just going to be less stillness right now. Yes. Like <laughs> yeah. I think that's another uh, art uh, that has to be learned in our lives is how to work out all those uh, rhythms mm -hmm. and there 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 is a season for everything and i think the um the indian tradition as i understand it uh, is in some ways i think more realistic than in the west in that there are stages of life for what a housekeeper is is one stage but there's that sense that but then it can oh it can be over and then the more contemplative the more um specifically uh yeah contemplative way of life can take over 
when you get older. Uh, I don't, I think that's maybe more theoretical than, than practiced. <laughs> and of course, in our, in our culture, uh, it doesn't seem to happen often enough, yeah. but I think it's, it's there as a possibility. Yeah. I, what's so comforting for me is I, I regularly tell people about Teresa's, Teresa of Avila's definition of holiness of just doing the will of God, you know, and that yeah. I, I think that needs to be our touchstone more than just like, what's your contemplative practice? Because it's like, well, what is the will of God for you presently? Like if you have three kids under the age of five, like finding time for like a 20 minute sit every day might sound like a luxury, like if only, yes. you know, whereas right. on the flip side, if you are like retired, widowed, you know, like right. whatever your situation is, you might be invited into more times of stillness and silence. Yeah. And, you know, it's figuring out like, what, what am I being called to in my present state? Yeah. So I think, and, and, and I think the learning is very mutual. I think that, mm. again, because uh, there was this idea of there's the professional contemplative and then there's everybody else. I think that's breaking down. And so we're learning more and more by listening to people and, and learning more and more how, how people do manage uh, yes. to be more contemplative in the midst of raising kids. I My heart always goes out, you know, not having kids. Whenever I see kids like at the airport or just around town or just around the apartments here i'm always excited but then often i look at their parents and they're just you can tell they're exhausted you know this is not you know they're not romantically uh thrilled with uh, the uh mystery of childhood they're like oh my gosh how am i going to get food on the table and right. won't these kids ever shut up and <laughs> stuff like that. so it's can i sleep through the night maybe yeah oh man yeah I, so my heart goes out I, that's uh it's an heroic vocation Yes, aren't they all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you a bit about too. Um, I know a big uh, turning point in your own life was being a foreign exchange student in the Middle East. And I was curious yes. if you'd share a little bit about what happened there, why it was so powerful and how that changed you. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I think I was still living in Kokomo, Indiana. That's where I grew up till I was uh, 16. And then we moved to Arizona. And I had met some exchange students back in Kokomo. And some crazy reason I got it in my head. Wow, I think I'd like to do that. Hmm. So um, when I got to Arizona, I kept that idea. I applied with something called the American Field Service. That's an old, I think it goes back to World War One. I. I think the American field service, they actually were stretcher bearers in the first world war. And they were, uh, I think they were, there was a kind of a pacifist dimension to them. Hmm. So <clears throat> I applied, I was studying French. So I probably figured, Whoa, maybe they'll send me to France. Uh, that's probably what was in my mind uh, as a teenager, who knows I'm an old man. I can't remember, but I, what I do remember is being a little surprised when mom called me from school one day and she said, Dave, I found out where you're going this summer. I realized, whoa, this is it. And I said, where? And she said, Afghanistan. And this is 1970. I'm 17 years old. So my first question, I hate to say, is, well, where is it? <laughs> Unfortunately, we all know where it is now. Uh, it's been, it's hard for me to, I can't even wrap my mind around, you know, it's been over 40 years of bloodshed and chaos. 
there. So in a way, I always say, I, I guess I was there in the golden age because it was uh, nine years before the Soviets invaded. Hmm. It was relatively stable. Uh, the king was in power. Hmm. And the family I lived with was just wonderful, so kind, so welcoming. I felt really like a member of the family. Hmm. We, we lived in a little neighborhood in um, Kabul near the university. And uh, I, I, I was just captivated. And part of what struck me, I, I fell in love immediately with Arizona when we moved there. And then it's like one year later, I'm I'm in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. And when we, uh, the plane was coming down uh, into Kabul, I thought, my gosh, this looks just like Arizona. <laughs> but it was halfway around the world. So I was captivated by the landscape. People were just so wonderful. Again, I, I think that uh, now we hear about Afghanistan, we hear about people like the Taliban. Well, that's a that's like a foreign culture. That's not really Afghan culture. That's, mm. uh, you know, that's unfortunately young refugee men who grew up in Pakistan and were radicalized by some very conservative uh, Muslim uh, teachings that were really foreign to Afghan culture. So I loved it. And uh, I had, I suppose, the most dramatic moment as I look back. I didn't know it at the time, but as I look back, we used to do homework with some local guys there. I couldn't speak much Persian, obviously, and uh, they weren't great at English, but we'd do algebra together. So that's the universal language. So uh, that was one way of relating. And then uh, these guys had, um, America was just unimaginable. And it's hard for Americans to imagine <laughs> that our life, it, many people, probably most people in the world can't even imagine what it would be like. So uh, it's really stressful <laughs> trying to kind of convey what it is like. And the best I could come up with a brief description of my impression of what they were thinking was that America is like a cross between Disneyland and an Elvis Presley movie. So <laughs> they just figured that's where I came from and that's, you know, who I am. Uh, and they loved that idea because it was just so exotic to them. <clears throat> so they were fascinated by having an American in their midst. But one day they did come up with a question they were puzzled by because well, this is this utopia. This is this wonderful place that people are rich and they're free and do whatever they want. And they seem pretty nice. But they, these kids said, but why are you firebombing Vietnam? And it was like a. A, a sword had kind of cut right through me. Uh, and suddenly, and again, it took years for me to kind of interpret what was happening, but suddenly I was struck, first of all, probably by their vulnerability, which is something it is very difficult for an American to imagine. I remember Octavio Paz once writing about how, you know, you don't have a whole lot of fear of Mexico and Canada in the United States. And you've got an, an Atlantic Ocean and a Pacific Ocean, uh, you know, on East and West. That's weird. 
nobody in this world could imagine that kind of security. Mm. For most people, there's a radical vulnerability. And if Russia wanted to like drop bombs on Vietnam, uh, Afghanistan, why not? America wants to drop, why not? Who's stopping them? And so uh, ooh, that really hit me. So their vulnerability and then my complete inability to have any rational explanation for what we were doing in Vietnam. And 50 years later, I have no rational explanation. I don't know. You hear these arguments and they make no sense to me. So um, I think that is one reason, uh, going back to, you know, why do you go into the monastery? I think that I was being struck at a, probably, for most people, kind of an early age uh, by the radical inadequacy of both our spiritual and political approaches to the world and uh, and the schizophrenic nature that America is this happy-go-lucky, rich and happy, you know, generous nation that, uh, you know, goes around the world doing some really uh, violent things that we don't yeah. talk about, or we weren't talking about. So those were things then when Dr. King started talking about that. I remember, you know, Muhammad Ali, the, the great boxer, says, you're not going to send me over there to kill brown people or yellow people, you know, people who are being treated the way my people were treated here in this country. Are you kidding me? So uh, there, there was this other perspective that started to come up. And mm. so I, I guess part of what I was thinking is, whoa, I, I need... I need to be transformed in some radical, profound way uh, before I have anything to offer to this this world. So <laughs> I mm. think that's part of what was going on with me. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that was a big moment. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to me how many of us um, have this like catalyzing moment into the contemplative life where. That usually is like a moment of crisis or trauma or like, or yeah. something about the world is not making sense, you know, where it's like yeah. your worldview is clashing with what's in reality. And it's like, something has got to change here. And yeah. it's probably me, <laughs> you know, yes, and that's, that's yeah. a hard transition. But I think that's kind of where, like we were talking about before that, that dark night comes in and, yeah. you know, the experience that we don't just like choose like well i'm gonna go do my duty and pick up the cross and it's like no usually the cross finds you <laughs> yeah yes i think that's true yeah um, it's yeah yeah i think that that's a, one of yeah one of those pitfalls of like taking up the spiritual life is um yeah like you're gonna do these ascetical things and uh we used to say in our monastery, you know, life will do it for you. <laughs> yes. So, yes. That is very yeah. real. So that, yeah. One thing that strikes me about um, your experience in the Middle East um, is just how easy it is for most of the world to forget that like half of the major world religions started over there, <laughs> you know? Yes. And I, I'm curious, um, Having spent time in Afghanistan and some of those areas and also doing interreligious work, like what about, um, I mean, it'd be 
interesting to hear your um, input also on like Judaism and Islam, but I'm curious specifically about Christianity. Like mm -hmm. what Middle Eastern qualities are there in Christianity that most of us forget about? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, people often talk about how the <clears throat> part of the, the uh, wonder of Christianity was that it took this strong Semitic tradition and transplanted it into Europe so that already with St. Paul, he, he mm. was you know, moving into Greece and uh, that part of the world. And so there was this whole other heritage in, in, in Greek culture uh, of philosophy. And so a lot of Western Christianity at least began to be translated into, mm -hmm. into Greek terms and Greek uh, metaphysics and we ended up the, the radical uh, of the Middle Ages was Thomas Aquinas and people were really upset because he was using all this Greek stuff you know as you know that we think of him as hyper conservative probably but but that was really uh, revolutionary and mm. so we were moving out of that more Semitic uh, mind frame and I think one of the things that you see more in in Judaism for example is that I, I think that it is more incarnational Mm. We, they, I don't think there was much as much of a split between like spirit and matter. Mm. Uh, it was a, it was, it's like whoa, it's all one. Um, and uh, so then we like then we started splitting things up: heaven and hell, um, eternal and temporal. And I think those are very Greek tendencies, mm. but I know other cultures do it as well. The group, the Jews didn't seem to do that as much. Even I loved an interview that Rabbi Abraham Heschel did uh, uh, back in the 60s, I guess. It was on, on one of those national TV interview things. And the interviewer was saying, gosh, what, what's the deal, Rabbi? You're out there marching with Martin Luther King and uh, protesting uh, the Vietnam War. But isn't... Uh, isn't uh, religion about the afterlife and the eternal and heaven? And, and he just leans over and he says, well, we don't have a lot of information <laughs> in terms of the afterlife. So what we do have is the prophets and they say, this is how we've got to live in this world. Mm. We've got to be just. We've got to be compassionate. And we've got to take good care of each other. And then we're in God's hands. There's something kind of agnostic there that, I've always kind of admired, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, of course, in time of Jesus, there was that whole debate of whether or not there is, even is an afterlife. And some some in that tradition, I think, would say, well, it's a little bit greedy. I mean, you get your 60 or 70 years. What do you want? <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's something about that. that you know, who do we think we are? <laughs> mm -hmm. There's a kind of humility maybe in that. So I think the Semitic traditions you know, had that kind of groundedness in the earth that I, I like. Mm. Um, and uh, family, you know, like the whole idea of celibacy never would have, that doesn't hold water uh, in the Jewish tradition. It's kind of unusual though that Jesus seemed to have been. Um, but uh, again, I think that I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong, but I'm just saying those are some tendencies, I think, that were the, 
that were there that maybe lost mm -hmm. as we moved and became more Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting even just to look at, you know, like early desert <clears throat> mothers and fathers and, you know, just some of those like the Alexandrian tradition and Syria and, you know, just how different churches um, were incarnate in different places is so fascinating to me to see how the rites were different, you know? I mean, a lot of people yeah. don't know that, you know, even within Catholicism, Roman Catholicism is only one of several yeah. rites, you know? <laughs> and it looks yeah, you know, so of course, different. Of course, you know, when I went on to study Arabic, I was thrilled then later when I became Catholic and found out there's a rite called the Melkite rite. Mm -hmm. And all the liturgies are in Arabic. And I used to have a, a a tape in the old days of cassette tapes of a, a Melkite liturgy and to hear this these beautiful Christian chants in uh, Arabic yes I remember the one uh what is it holy 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 lord god of power and might and to hear it in Arabic whoa it was yes kind of gives gave me the chills and of course though that's you're hearing some of the, the timber, I think, and some of the drama of the way Jesus would have been speaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I'm fascinated by language, uh, to me, you know, how certain things you just can't translate. And uh, I, I feel lucky to have had some exposure to Semitic language because there's just something visceral about that. Yes. That's, uh, quite, quite wondrous. When I studied in Rome with this religious community, um, I had classmates that were um, Maronite Catholics, you know, they were Lebanese yeah. and going to mass right. with them. It, I, I felt like it was, it was like Aladdin goes to mass, you know, like everything was sung yeah. in these like minor keys. I was like, this yeah. is amazing, you know, or like yeah. I had a friend who was a Coptic priest, which is a rite in Egypt and yep. you know, their tabernacle, usually like Roman Catholics, you have like a little gold box somewhere in a church and their tabernacle is this like gold dove that was suspended above the altar and he like pulled it down in the middle of mass you know so it was like descending upon, i was like this is so freaking cool yeah. you know it's just yeah that's, the, the cultural, that's drama yeah yeah the cultural incarnations and um yeah that drama that's added to it that i think is uh often lost in our kind of whitewashed european versions <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we we used to struggle when we used to teach this class called Fire and Light, the the um, history of Christian mysticism. We used to struggle with presenting. You, you want to present those desert fathers and mothers accurately, but it's unfortunate that for them, it's like the highest uh, sort of spiritual state was what they called apatheia, which, you know, in our this isn't what they meant, but in our ears it sounds like apathy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and but there's that tendency let's slow things down let's quiet it down let's, mm -hmm. whereas um, yeah in the semitic traditions there was mm -hmm. a lot more of that more passionate engagement and even even in greek thought the the, the passion was like a uh, vice you, yes. you know er, eros the problem with eros is that uh, it, it it's uh it means that you lack something uh, it, whereas with agape, you know, you, you've got it all and mm. you don't lack anything and only that's only for God. Whereas, uh, I, you know, I don't think uh, in most Semitic traditions that that, that would not be an issue. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, the, right. The, a passionate engagement in life is is a virtue. So, yeah. 
I wanted to ask about your teaching experience because I know, I mean, you taught that class on mysticism for what, 13 years and I think it was, yeah. Taught all sorts of other um, interesting classes and um, retreats and, you know, different things over the years. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, especially in your um, tenure in teaching, what, what shocked students the most? Like what kind of preconceptions did they come in with? And then what left them just uh, kind of mind blown or stunned or kind of their ideas turned on their head? Mm. <laughs> I, you know, there was one uh, uh, dramatic instance I could cite. Uh, there was a guy who um, had come from a, a very conservative, uh, a more evangelical Christian tradition and we didn't of course know this until much farther along in the course that he apparently he had come in order to convert us oh okay <laughs> because he was quite he was quite sure that uh, you know we, we were really a way off base as roman catholics and uh, and all that hocus pocus of uh, mysticism and all that that's like mm, that's demonic or something well the poor guy he just loved it and unfortunately, he was very deeply shaken mm-hmm. because he uh, he came into this thinking he was confronting the enemy and he actually loved it. <laughs> so that was one of the more surprising things uh, that that um, I ran into. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, like me, a lot of students had no idea that um, monks existed anymore. Mm-hmm. So just that that whole way of life was new. Um, and, and of course, we had students who were, it was wonderful. They were, they were very curious. But uh, I remember one student saying one day, well, my exposure to Christianity is I saw a televangelist once and I went to a funeral. And I think that was about it. <clears throat> so you were, uh, some of the students, uh, and, you know, this Colorado College, these are not, these are, pretty mm-hmm, pretty astute mm. people uh but uh, that was kind of a revelation to me that there's a lot of folks out there who just have there's zero uh, exposure to spiritual tradition the other thing that was fascinating to us is that we were we were running into a fair number of students who were coming from what we might call uh, you know, kind of hybrid or hyphenated communities where their parents, if they were involved in a tradition, they may have been in two different traditions. So you'd have a Catholic and a Jewish, you know, spouses. And then the kids are kind of, you know, raised in between those and not quite sure how to negotiate that. That was fascinating to me. Mm. Um, I think that no matter who we're with, if it's retreats or uh, with students, there's an amazing lack of knowledge about Christian mystical tradition. And it was, the, the joke is, I don't know if Tessa ever mentioned this to you, but the joke is that once when we were at a, a Christian Buddhist dialogue up at Naropa in Boulder, Colorado, and back in the 80s, uh, <clears throat> Tessa and uh, Thomas Keating and Brother David Steindlerast were all talking about this mystical tradition and some guy at the question and answer period gets up and says 
well, wait a minute, I was brought up Roman Catholic. I never heard any of this. Is this heretical or what? And it was that it was hilarious because they had they had an Orthodox priest there too, uh, a Greek Orthodox guy. And so they had this sort of mock trial of Tessa as a heretic. And they decided she was cool. She was definitely um, Orthodox. but And they made a kind of a joke of it. But that's interesting to me that yes. this is, it's becoming more and more known, my impression is. But still yeah um, i think it's the yeah. best kept secret in christianity like that that there yes. is this mystical core and i think there is in any major world religion you know that there's a mystical heart mm. to it and yeah <laughs> there are plenty of different forms and um yeah sometimes yeah, unfortunately think, yeah go ahead but just i think then that is the key to interreligious dialogue i think uh, that um it, it's not going to happen unless it is it, coming out of that more contemplative uh, experience, which involves being radically encountered by and encountering something that's so awesome, so mysterious. It, it so shapes you at the core of your being that you just don't have words for it. And suddenly you do have to get humble and realize, whoa, there's a lot we don't know. And that's a great place for dialogue. Yes, yes. When and, like language is stripped away. <clears throat> yeah. And then and you can't weaponize that. That's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. You 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 can't hit anybody over the head with, with that. You you end up serving people and mm. um listening to them. So yeah. That's that's why I that's to me the hope. Uh, of the future and you don't have to sacrifice any of your own identity i know there's all these questions about well is is anybody going to be just one religion in the future i don't know but for me i just keep falling more and more deeply in love with christ but my impression is he's falling deeply in love with all these other traditions and that's why it's happening to me too and that's fine i don't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah because it seems like the the divine spark at the center I mean, at least in my opinion, is one and the same. And and that's why, you know, people who are closer to that center, like two mystics of different religions, have far more in common than a mystic and a fundamentalist of the same religion. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a really important, I think, insight. Uh, I think you or cousins maybe talked about that some, that, that it might be artificial to say, well, they're Jews and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists, that, that what it might be more helpful to talk about is it fundamentalist? Is it um, kind of mainstream? Is it more uh, contemplative? And if the more contemplative it is, the more, I think, the open doors to, to dialogue because you've just been knocked off your high horse mm -hmm. and um, you're ready to listen and learn. I, I, I just, I, I've only seen a clip, but I've heard people talking about, uh, there's a film, it's called Mission Joy. Uh, that's uh, dialogues between uh, Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama. Hmm. And just the clips I've seen, it's just wonderful. They're laughing. They've got their arms around each other. There's this beautiful camaraderie between them. And I think hmm. uh, that's a great example of what happens. Yes. So. Yes. So you become more Christian, I think, as you as you uh, encounter these other other traditions, not less. It's not a matter of watering something down. It's a matter of 
it's more like permaculture, you know, when you think about biology and that that's my kind of paradigm. You know, monocultures, uh, they're just, you, you plant corn, you live on corn, there's a blight, you're dead. Mm-hmm. But if you've got an almond tree and you've got some pomegranates and you've got some grain and you've got, you know, all these things uh, synergistically work together and they all get healthier and healthier. And um, that's to me uh, where the life is. Mm. So it's a great image. It's funny. I think uh, there's that sense of Islam as being so close-minded and yet of all the scriptures, I, there's a great line in the Quran about what well, God created us so that we could get to know each other. Mm. And it was different traditions different languages and wouldn't it be nice to get to know each other uh, and i just think that's a, a wonderfully anti-clannish approach yes <clears throat> totally um i wanted to save a little bit of time um to ask you about your poetry because i think that's <laughs> um there's something I mean, obviously very different between like your original intent of being like a journalist and the writing style that you use in poetry, you know, they're very mm -hmm. different mediums. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious um, what role poetry has played in your spiritual life in particular? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I just, I love the sound of words. Mm. Like, it's kind of embarrassing. My, when I was a little kid, I, I don't remember this, but I guess I made up my own language. And my brother was my translator. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, and I still remember, I mean, little like ads that were uh, on the radio or TV when, when I was a little kid. And, and I'm shocked I remember this. And I realized it's part of the power of words. Hmm. And of course, advertisers know about that and they manipulate us. But but the real power uh, that comes through somebody like a Shakespeare, it's just, wow, it transports you when you hear it. It's like, it's, it's like kind of music and it can be kind of incantatory. Mm. Uh, so those are things about it that I love. Uh, I also love the fact that it's sort of the most primitive mm. uh, of language in any culture. And at the same time, it's really the most exalted. And to me, that's, so incarnational you know it's like bringing together heaven and earth uh, mm. in in these uh, words so i think it it also it uh it has it does a great job of short-circuiting our rationalism mm. mm -hmm. and reason is so important but it, sometimes i think we can uh, idolize it and uh, so there's a lot more to life than equations and logic. Yes. And I think that, uh, again, what was it? Pascal said reason, the heart has reasons that reason knows not. In mm -hmm. that uh, we, poetry has a way of, of taking us uh, out onto that frontier where uh, some of those distinctions start to, to, to fall apart. <clears throat> hmm. I also think you know, uh, Karl Rahner once said, you know, whatever happened to all the singing theologians? 
Mm. And uh, that always struck me that it should be about song. It should be about wonder. Instead, it became a, a, a system that you have to judge as to whether it's orthodox or not. And if it's not, you know, off with your head. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's not that's not very encouraging. So I think part of what's beautiful about poetry is that it's, it, you don't have to, it does, there's no orthodox or unorthodox about it. Mm. And it speaks right into the heart of the messiness and the mystery of, of, of being human. Um, yes, so I love I love that Dostoevsky quote that beauty will save the world. And yes, yeah. that that kind of fierce beauty that's um, like you said it, it short circuits that rational brain. I mean, it's we we spend so much time in our left brain, the analytical. Um, so to go into like the right brain and not have to, I don't know, like you think of the transcendentals, goodness, truth, and beauty. Like, I think for so long, we've been stuck on truth, basically since the reformation, we're like, let's argue this and like sub point a and sub point three point one point, you know, and it's like, oh yeah. my gosh, <laughs> you know, like who cares? Like, yeah. can we please encounter the holy, like through something yes. that is so visceral that you just can't escape it? Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, uh, <laughs> I used to read uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, yes. who uh, I probably understood 10% of what he was saying. I, uh, <laughs> but but he emphasized that uh, the, just what you're saying, that uh, we, so, we got so obsessed with the true uh, in terms of analysis and reason. And then also the, the good in terms of moral behavior. Mm -hmm which is extremely important, but then there's the moral-ism that, that, mm. that uh, people hate about religion. Um, but the beautiful has been somewhat uh, ignored, he felt. Yes. And that's where, uh, that's where I want to spend my time. Yeah. So. Have you heard that story? I, I mean, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I heard a story told of von Balthasar during the Second Vatican Council that he was there with all these theologians and that he like stormed out of one of the sessions and just like slammed the door saying, there's no arrows in it. <laughs> <I'm just laughing. laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. <laughs> oh, I never heard that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, that's yeah, that sums it up. Yes. So, um, so anyway, before that's... we close would you mind sharing one of your poems with us and um kind of invite us into that space of beauty yeah okay uh i'm trying to think what might be the best maybe this one i'll i'll do because um i wrote this during advent <clears throat> and uh well i tessa and i get our hair cut at this place where uh, there's, a, there's a young woman named Angie who works there. And every year at Christmas, Angie's mom uh, makes tamales. That's a big deal in this part of the world. Christmas is the time for tamales. So we ordered some tamales from Angie's mom. And I had a kind of epiphany when we, we showed up at the salon uh, and Angie comes from the back room, walking up between all the the stylists' chairs, you know, where they were cutting people's hair. And she's got this arm full of fresh uh, tamales. And 
I guess in my crazy mind, I was thinking this is like an operatory procession in the mass, you know, mm. when you bring the gifts up to the altar. And so I had a kind of a, a crazy experience of that. So then, um, then afterwards, Tess and I um, went over, it was dark, it was getting close to uh, Christmas time and a local Lutheran church has a like a living uh, nativity that mm. they do, and you 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 drive it's drive through <laughs> a drive through nativity. So you, you stop at different stations, and then there's you know the wise men and the shepherds, and and then the holy family. Well, there were a lot of people lined up to um, see the nativity scene. In the meantime, we're sitting in the car with these hot tamales and they're filling the car with aroma. And so that's sort of the context here. Great. Advent meditation, offertory. I love the Cactus Blossom Salon, but this was brand new. I wasn't getting shorn. Rudolph was run, run, running on the radio while Angie retrieved our order from the back room. She emerged and began her operatory procession down the center aisle between the swiveling pews. Scissors went silent. Her thick black hair tumbled over her shoulders and in her strong brown arms, she cradled 24 green chili pork tamales. Her mother's creations, wrapped in foil, bagged in plastic, and warm as life. My friend Tessa took them gently in her arms while I fumbled with a wad of bills. We drove through the dark and joined the queue of cars waiting to enter the Lutheran drive-through living nativity. The interior grew redolent. We had no napkins, no plastic cutlery. We gave in. Fingers anointed in lard, illuminated by tail lights we received. I think I'm in love with Angie's mother, I blurted. I hope her father doesn't own a gun. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I love the... Um... The richness, the like, the fingers in the lard, like anointed, but like warm as life. Like there's something <laughs> wonderful about like, that is one of the reasons I think that I, I feel like I could never really leave Christianity is just that incarnational quality that like, yeah, the messiness, the sacramentality of everything from, you know, the lard <laughs> on your fingers yeah. from the tamales to and everything else yeah yeah and and just this yeah this kind of warmth and humor about it that mm -hmm. that, uh, that i love yeah. yeah well beautiful well thank you so much for sharing your thank you um stories and your <laughs> life experiences with us i think it's such a joy to be able to um walk together for a pace yeah, this was wonderful. I, uh, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed it.
Yeah. If any of our listeners want to learn more about what you're up to or um, Sand and Sky, where you're at presently, um, where should people go? Yeah, sandandsky.org is uh, the website for the Desert Foundation, which is the little uh, nonprofit that Tessa and I uh, co-found, co-founded. And then Tessa has her own uh, site called tessabalecki.com. And so there's a lot of overlap between the two. And then if you go to Tessa's site, you can also connect to our new podcast called Fire and Light. And it's basically conversations on, we'd say, conversations on life, love, and soul. Mm. So there are just, uh, there's one currently available, actually a, a second one right now uh, has just become available. So uh, the first one kind of introduces us. And then this, this new one is a combination of celebrating Candlemas, which it begins, uh, which is celebrated on February 2nd. And also we talk a little about Black History Month. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, I look forward to checking that out and encourage everybody else to as well. There's a lot of wonderful things happening at the Desert Foundation. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you everyone for listening today. We so appreciate it and hope you'll tune in again next time. spiritual wanderlust. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving us a review or sharing it with others. It really does help us reach more kindred spirits who are hungry for the depths. To learn more about what we're up to, or to access our free resources for spiritual growth, visit us at www.spiritualwanderlust.org. May your days ahead be spacious, sprightly, and surprising. See you next time.